today on the show, we have visiting professor and researcher at Guilford College, Christian Mathias, who teaches and studies community justice studies, uh, which is an interdisciplinary field combining insight from history, um, economic development and politics, and sociology. He also is very knowledgeable about the philosophy of history, something that I'm very interested in. I went to see a research presentation of his a, a couple of months ago, and I believe the title was uh, The Wages of Economic Self-Deception. Is that correct? Yeah. And he put forth a very interesting thesis um, that in terms of race, uh, societies, American society is much more willing to move forward um, on issues dealing with sort of negative rights, just uh, the right to integrate, but not willing to move forward on economic empowerment. Uh, when there's actual money at stake. And so today we're going to talk to him about his research. And he also identifies as an anarcho, uh, anarcho-futurist. Um, and so we're going to talk to him, what's that about? So first off, how are you doing? And uh, how how's your research and stuff been going lately? Cool. Thanks, Roman. Thanks mm-hmm. for having me on the show. I'm doing really well. Um, you know, finding opportunities lately to talk about this during pandemic, there, there are a lot of opportunities to talk about things like economic suffrage and futurism. Um, finding the time is tricky, especially, you know, while teaching full time. Um, so there are, you know, often many people are venues to talk in, but actually carving out the time. It's kind of ironic to talk about labor and labor and wage and income, but actually not have the time to do as much <laughs> of that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, interesting. Yeah, the stuff, the stuff I really love to work on, but yeah, I'm doing well. I see. Well, first off, I'm curious about the, the ideology you identify with, anarcho-futurism. I know a little bit about the, the main anarchist thinkers, Kropotkin and Bakunin, mm-hmm. uh, but you say you're not too interested in, in the old theories. You have, um, what, is, what is anarcho-futurism sure. about? Yeah, um, let me let me start by explaining um, kind of the, uh, the the previous conversation you and I had to listeners yes. about you know sort of avoiding spending too much time with kind of the dominant intellectual scholars. You know, um, many of the many of the ideas that I try to draw on come out of either you know Kropotkin style observation of how people live. You know, so I do take some cues from Kropotkin. Okay. Who, pays attention to nature and, and how people and, and organisms, how, how you know, we cooperate more than compete. But you know, what that points me to is to spend less time with the intellectual theory, which is interesting, and more time noticing how cooperative humans and other species are in order for our survival, our evolution, and our thriving. So as far as um, you know, the things that have influenced me, uh, observing everyday life and noticing cooperation mm. and, and noticing mutual aid, collective action is really important to me. So the everydays of you know the everydays of human life and community. The other part is literature. That um, some of the, to me some of the most important resources we have for thinking through politics, economics, social change, what have you, um, questions of justice and liberation come from scholars who try to write worlds or write you know frameworks that we may not actually live in Mm. so you know that we don't live in but could live in or they take these threads that are part of our life but are incredibly hard to notice and then through literary skill they you know just expand and embellish and show us what if that thing we do but don't notice was much bigger part of our lives so i rely on the everyday and i rely on literature a lot and i can talk more about those authors yeah but that's the back that's a little bit of the backdrop Interesting. Yeah. So, in terms of being an anarchist, mm-hmm. um, what exactly 
does that entail? You sort of described your research process, but what are the beliefs that you've come to from this uh, process of thinking? Yeah. Um, that you found, and how does it contradict, I guess, with the, the, the way things, the status quo of how society is, okay. and also how other leftist ideologies view things? Yeah, let me try to take those in pieces. Um, I say, you know, jokingly but sincerely at the same time yeah. that talking about anarchism, most of what a person says is going to make another anarchist upset. <laughs> you know, um, huh. I do like that that sort of on left politics or anarcho politics, there is conflict. There's a there's a, a conflict about trying to keep each other in check, trying to educate each other. Um, there's not some sort of like homogeneity or kind of forced similarity. So you know, just I just want to grant that the version of anarchism that I think about is probably going to be very different from lots of other people, and that's really cool. You know, heterogeneity is I think awesome. Mm -hmm. So start by pissing some people off. Um, <laughs> um, many of the cues, you know, I take um, I read through Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin. So those are two of the big influences on my on my thinking. One, we think about Octavia Butler's writing um, in really bringing Afrofuturism in the literary world to life in many, many ways. Not the first, but certainly one of the most well-known. The idea that um, we shape change, you know, that we live mm -hmm. in constant change and that we have to shape it. So Octavia Butler would say, you know, um, God is change, right? And also these, these famous quotes out of the earth seed philosophy that um, everything you change changes you, you know, that we're constantly in change. This idea of really just trying to understand that whenever whenever I see a problem, whenever somebody brings me a problem or says, you know, there's something we're suffering with or struggling, right, or struggling or suffering from, one of the things that Butler's anarcho worldview or anarcho for futurism helps me think about is that um, look for places where forced permanence, forced homogeneity, where some government structure or corporate private entity has tried to derive personal private property or wealth off of creating a false permanence, off of isolating people, off of creating borders, right? Mm. So militarized, weaponized borders, isolating people in certain kind of housing structures. Um, so Butler points me to problematize things in terms of permanence and this false permanence or false fixity, trying to make things static that shouldn't be static, um, to cut off the natural flow of resources, the you know, to destroy sharing in favor of property. So that's a Butler-style take. Right? Okay. Does that make sense? In Le Guin, I draw some similar ideas. Some of the key things that influence my thinking about anarchism and futurism from Le Guin are that, um, you know, we we seem to do better with each other. Humans seem to do better with each other and with nature when we um, think about what we share and what we make use of without owning, that we could eliminate most of what we think of as private property. We might still have some personal items that are our kind of personal property, but this massive economic, political, and cultural infrastructure around private property and the fixation of m moving things and objects and resources and cycles into a fixed point in terms of private property um, has been really destructive and continues to be quite destructive. So. You can see in both Butler and Le Guin the take on change and statics, right? Things being changing, things being static, things being shared, things being privately owned as well, that those kind of things go together for me. So those are two very big guiding mm. points in my worldview. So do you also have, um, without the infrastructure we have currently, which, is, which makes up the economy, how would the economy look without that? Mm -hmm. um, 
in the in in the lecture that you mentioned you had attended kind of in the opening and I'll, right. I'll kind of reflect back on that one of the key pieces and I you know I borrow this from scholars like Gibson Graham and Martia Sen and a few others so I wouldn't necessarily count as anarchists but you know mm -hmm. I think maybe Gibson Graham to some extent sure um, um, is the idea that what we currently what most of us currently call economics to me isn't economics it's finance it's the finance market right it's the <laughs> it's financial markets and and currency and capital that has imposed on or colonized economics I take the point from Amartya Sen that we should think about the root of econom economics as a household in which people's needs are met right so if you think yeah. about how we share or distribute or move resources, opportunities, the way that we do things to protect dignity and to bolster dignity, right? Um, finance markets, conventional financial markets don't really prioritize quality of life in a healthy household the way I think economics should. So, hmm. you know, under, under that view of economics, things like mutual aid, resource sharing, labor are a much higher priority than private wealth, control of resources, you know, consolidation of political power in the hands of a few ideologues. So just the first thing I want to say is, um, I think we mostly don't know what economics is because we've been living in the shadow of finance. Um, Interesting. And that probably upsets my friends and colleagues who call themselves economists, but I don't know what else to say. <laughs> okay. like, it just doesn't make sense to me to call the finance industry economics when economics, I think, is about quality of life, not private wealth. Well, so how would it look different? Is, talk about that. Yeah, go instinct, ahead. Yeah. My instinct as a political science student, yeah, and as a, I'm also an economics minor mm -hmm. and international political economy minor. My instinct is to think that it, well, if the market's not doing something, then it'll be the state doing that thing. But as an anarchist, you say um, that states have a propensity towards being static. Um, so if it's not the market and not the state, or if it is a different type of state, what exactly is the, the system that would allocate goods and resources mm -hmm. in, a, in an anarchic society? Yeah, um, one of the visions, you know, so let me just kind of talk about one of the literary yeah. versions. Yeah, it's funny, I can, um, Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, this famous novel from the 1970s called The Dispossessed. She imagines a world where anarchists left their, you know, environmentally abused and decaying capitalist planet moved mm. to the moon and you know, <laughs> moved and set up a new world and okay. they use complex computer systems to help right kind of map out resource sharing and map out labor so they use technology to try and figure out how to share resources and wealth and I don't um, I can't imagine that she was wrong about that in the 1970s and it just seems more true today that if we put our if we Ooh. put if we put our technology to the point of figuring out how to coordinate, right? So okay. coordination is different than the kind of control that states in you know the the kind of regulatory control that states use. So if we had if we have opportunities so one yeah, right, we use our technology to kind of coordinate differently. That's one piece. The other are the views of things like bioregionalism that yeah. suggest that whether we we kind of rethink political boundaries the word boundaries here doesn't even work but rethink kind of political boundaries in terms of things like watershed you know where are the wa where's the water where's the river we hmm. rethink these really you know kind of obvious geological and aquatic boundaries we coordinate within watershed or coordinate within geographic boundary 
among people who live relatively local to those regions. And what would the benefit of, of that be yeah. to coordinate within the, is, it, is there an ecological benefit to I that? think so. I do think so. Huh. That you live with a much more immediate politics based in um, the natural environment and the climate that you're in. So okay. you might not make the same decisions in, in more desert climates, colder, al higher altitude climates, lower wetland climates, coastal climates that are economic resource sharing, maybe perhaps assisted with complex computer technology or not, I don't know, but that we would, we would be more in touch with the environment that sustains us and have a much closer connection to those environmental cues. So any kind of resource sharing across watershed or mm. across geological or geographic boundary, right? Any kind of, kind of sharing or coordination um, would be informed by our local bioregional needs. I mean, you watch Australia burn, you watch California right. burn, you watch Oregon um, Valley, the Lamette Valley burn, you sort of watch these fires and think, wow, so much of this has been, you know, you could look at this as very kind of, I think, too bluntly as just kind of, well, these are the results of the human impact on the climate. Yeah. It's also highly centralized federal policy, right? You know, these highly centralized federalized federal policies that are, um, I think ill-tuned and incapable of putting the people who live in these places in direct relationship with their natural environment and with the ecosystem they have to work within. So that's a that's a much longer conversation or story. Right. But the two the two points I want to make are that I actually think we have and have had the technology to coordinate for quite a long time better than we okay. do coordinate resource distribution and opportunity mapping. Even though it's it's never going to be perfect, there will always be problems. And I think a more bioregional basis for our resource coordination would be more effective mm. than a highly centralized state government arbitrarily placed in one part of the country 200 and some odd years ago by a couple of folks who were rich. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> these are these are odd, so, archaic things to keep doing. I'm I'm curious, what would be the role of the individual in in this society? And and my question is, would to coordinate? Would you have to? Um, compensate individuals for the work they do or would everything uh, be volunteer based because I know mm -hmm. that in, in some strains of thought um, there's mutualism which argues that you can have like compensation for people but then other anarchists and other Marxists would say that no like if you have co it has to all be volunteer based like to each their um, their needs from from each what well, they can tr contribute to each their needs sure is the saying or something like that yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder whether one of the most important pieces of Marx's writing, at least important to me, has um, largely been ignored and might be helpful here. Yeah. And this is, um, I'm sure there's debate about this much more extensive than I know, but that we actually won't know what something like communism looks like, right? Sort of, a, a, you know, like really complex communism. We actually won't know what it looks like. Nobody knows what communism will be like because we'll only know what it will be like when we create it after the demise of capitalism. Okay. And so socialism, which can be orchestrated by a centralized state, and and I think honestly would be a far far better situation than our current, you know, state barely state moderated capitalism. Mm. Socialism, I think there are a lot of clear pictures of different models of socialism. But communism or complex mutual aid or complex coordination um, is is still something we would have to learn by doing it. How do you so, so how do you go there 
yeah. and move towards that if you don't quite know what it is yet. Yeah. It seems, yeah. That's why the futurists like Butler, okay. oh, and I don't know if I should call Butcher, Butler a futurist, but that's why scholars who I take to be futurists, right, like Butler and Le Guin, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, that's why they're so interesting to me because they're doing this very, very hard work of bridging realities, of bridging the, the history and the world in which we live and then imagining alternatives, that is actually very difficult, complex work to spend time imagining, whether it's utopia or dystopia, to imagine these alternatives. So, so let's go back to the the question about labor, right? Or right. Compensation. That you would asked. there be like federations or, or workers' commissions, or syndicates? Is it, yeah, yeah. Um, I imagine so. I mean, whether we take models like the Zapatistas, for instance. Okay. I think that. The bioregional, you know, or I, so think here is too strong a word. That's an epistemic claim. I have a hunch. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have a, I have an open hunch <clears throat> that bioregional coordinating systems, right, systems we establish that help us coordinate in much more regional ways, um, that we there will be some places where people end up compensated with something like currency and a shared bank, right? And okay. that works in that region. And that there will also be places where there is no currency, and currency to some extent is an affront to the culture. Mm. And that your share of resources and opportunities is negotiated without currency. I mean, I think that we'd have to expect diverse economies, like diverse right. economies that are highly localized to culture and people in place. A Global economy, which I think is more of a global finance market, has right. mostly sought to homogenize financial schemes into this this thing that can be controlled as like static blocks in a system. But I we live in constant change, right? We live in constant change. We live in bioregional uniqueness. We live in cultural diversity, and our financial markets. Um, either exploit that or destroy it, either commodify you know it or eradicate it. I recently it. Sorry, was yeah, doing... Sorry, a bit uh, of a soapbox. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was recently doing research on uh, finance in Nigeria, hmm. actually, and there is this scheme to really centralize the banking system. So what happened was the central bank raised the minimum reserve requirements for um, by ten by a factor of 10, from hmm. 2.5 trillion to 25 trillion naira, which is the currency of Nigeria. And so what happened was... Um, the banks either had to get that much currency or be merged or acquired by other banks. And there was this one intellectual who said, mm. like, I see the future and there's only like 20 to 25 major world banks. He was really, really passionate about centralized banking for some reason. So what happened is when the small firms got acquired and some of the larger firms still needed more, more capital to fulfill the requirement, um, they basically sold their stocks to customers and that by giving their customers loans to buy that stock. So it was a complete asset bubble when they tried to, because you're, this, the Nigerian stock market became, I think it was the seventh most overvalued hmm. in the whole world because of this scheme uh, for centralization where you're not really, it's like growth in numbers because uh, the price goes up, but it's, it's like, if it's like the very bank that's, that the stock, has um, experienced growth is because that bank gave money alone to people to buy that stock. So it's like a, it's like a closed system mm -hmm. where there's no actual real growth mm. coming in. In a, mm. in a system where where growth is a virtue of right. the financial market, whereas in economic systems, I'm thinking of 
there will be some places or some places where growth, I mean, we might th think more like investment, right? We rethink yeah. investment in terms of the contribution you make, less in terms of growth that we might seem, see as cancerous. Let okay. me go back and ask you something about this. Um, mm -hmm. How many how many of us living, you know, in, in contemporary industrialized societies have any idea why banks became what they are? What's the history of banks? And alongside this question about the history of banks and banking converting from a place where resources were stored to um, a dominator of financial markets, right? Right. Alongside this, I also want to ask this question about why are there not more quote-unquote banking cooperatives? I'm not just talking about credit union systems, mm. but banking cooperatives where... Never even heard of the term. Well, so, yeah. yeah, but think about this, right? Think about if you, if you at least in an in anarchist or anarcho-syndicalist sense, if, yeah. you, if you replace, maybe not as the permanent long-term solution, but if groups of collectives of people can begin to develop these cooperative banks where you have an equitable share of the thing, right? You have an equitable right. share of the banked resources. Um, versus these mega monopolies, you know, these mega monopoly multinational banking entities that um, I assume would destroy anything like that if they got the chance. So if we're so, going to have to deal with finance markets, hmm. right, if we're going to have to deal with them, why aren't there more banking entities that are co-ops? And what would that look like as a transitional phase into something more like the resource sharing I'm talking about. So you said that people would own the share just by virtue of using the bank? Is that? If um, whatever, I mean, this is, there may be lots of different ways to do this. Okay. Um, either it's a share of proportion of labor over time, right? How, how much labor and time do you put in? Your shares are kind of calculated. Um, okay. If you sell or trade something and we're dealing in a currency system, hmm what portion of that becomes a, a contribution to the co-op, you know, the portion that you keep and use in your own account versus the per portion that okay. goes back to sustain the overall co-op. So to some extent, I mean, credit union lending and bank lending might be a little like this, right? Yeah. The banks and their credit unions are lending resources or wealth they've ostensibly taken from <laughs> using the finance that's stored there. Mm -hmm. um, but why aren't more banking institutions, why don't we have a cooperative system where you have a share of what's done with the wealth you contribute versus somebody else making wealth on what you hold? Does that make sense? So I think in Nigeria, sort of. I just sort of wonder in Nigeria whether, um, I'm not so sure about the connection with the stock market, whether... Um, so the, the, bank, the stocks of the banks were what drove the stock market up so high because the banks were giving loans to their customers to buy their own stock in order to have the to mm. reach the 25 trillion naira capital requirement because it's it's like banks have the minimum requirement yeah. of capital that they have to have to be you know accredited and, and be able to loan it out and the idea was that by raising the capital requirement you cause mergers because the small banks can't survive oh sure and sure. so it was a very conscious effort to to centralize yeah and that's what i'm talking yeah. about that this, yeah that that agenda of centralization <laughs> explain it as you know i mean as I, I should yeah it's cool that you have that knowledge because i mean i know certainly nothing at all about the nigerian finance system right. nor as much about banking as i wish i did but one of the things that that i you know feel a little more confident talking about is um the the agenda of staticizing fixing, centralizing these kind of financial markets and destroying the smaller 
cooperatives or the smaller banking institutions, um, it, you know, it's just the same project. It's mm -hmm. consolidation of private wealth by already wealthy people mm -hmm. at the expense of poorer people. And um, in my view, that's what the <laughs> the purpose of the Federal Reserve is. There's mm -hmm. a recent um, book that came out, The Lords of Easy Money, mm -hmm. that's been getting a lot of attention and how quantitative easing, because when the government sells assets, um, well, it so the the treasury issues bonds, and then some of these bonds are sold to um, sold to the Federal Reserve, which creates new money in order mm -hmm. to buy these assets, and some of them are sold to private investors. And so there's a very large portion of like the U.S. tax dollars now that's going to private investors who bought the bonds, and it's the already rich people who are able to finance mm -hmm. finance that debt. And depending on your, your your monetary theory, by creating new money, the Federal Reserve arguably is what causes uh, most of the inflation we see. And so there's hmm. a way of investing where you can take advantage of inflation and know which industries are beneficial, going to benefit from it. But that knowledge isn't available to no. the the average person. And so it's really Wall Street, the big banks, who benefit because it's also yeah. a form of bailing, <laughs> creating this. All that liquidity is a form of bailing them out because they're able to just get new money to pay back debts when their old debts uh, aren't payable under the current value of money. The um, the one of the phrases I really like here is house of cards. Yeah, you know that this is a very fragile house of cards, um, and the hard part for me is that there are people under that house, you know? So right. it's one thing to see it as fragile, right? To see this as really fragile, but it's also top heavy in a way that like, you know, the the people at the bottom who are laboring to hold up this house of cards um, versus the people at the top who are lavishly enjoying mm. it, you know, when that house of cards falters or crumbles, they're laborers who suffer because of it, you know? And yeah. And but wait, yeah, I, I, we could spend a lot of time on that. Um, mm. But it, you know, I want to pivot a bit to. Um, I'm wondering, in terms of models of socialism, you see, do you consider um, things like the Catalan co-ops or the mm. Israeli kibbutz? Um, because I've heard that those were sort of um, either cooperative farms or like worker commission governed societies that worked pretty relatively well on the small scale. That they existed in in regional by, by yeah. regional yeah um, these and, and other similar models these experiments um, and I it, it even feels a little patronizing to call them experiments but right. I mean it in in the in the futurist sense these trial runs these attempts to establish these kind of communal networks um, they actually are really fascinating and um, you know um, I don't know how much I don't know how much students are ever asked to read Engels after Marx died, but if you read Friedrich <laughs> Engels, you read some of the scholars you know who um, talk about anarchism, socialism, mutualism later than Marx. You read these these sort of stories that these kind of communal networks thrive until monopolies come in and try and destroy them. That um, we actually do a pretty good job setting up these networks, these experiments, these communities. Mm until some feudal lord or, <laughs> or warring monarch or CEO comes along to wipe them out. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else to say except that, um, I'll say this, there's a good chance we're all gonna have to get really good at that. Whether it's my generation, yours, or the next one, we have to get really good at setting up these regional cooperative community networks because I think the House of Cards is already showing it's that it 
it's out of touch with most people. Do you think there's a risk of the communities becoming hierarchical and, and just sort of um, becoming what they sought out to avoid if they become too big? Because there's something I've heard of called the iron law of uh, oligarchy in, in social sciences that any institution or organization, no matter what its purpose is, the more members it becomes, the more it tends to strati stratify yeah. and become hierarchical. Yeah, there's um, there's all sorts of other sociobiological arguments too. Okay. I mean, you can find um, interesting studies suggesting that we do well in um, you know we do well in communities of like 175 people, right? Or really, the, you know, we go back and look at these studies of kind of like medieval Europe and, and, and what and what quantify how is that quantified like in terms of health? Physical? The there there were some in recent years, and I I'd have to go back and look at this. One of the studies that comes to mind is the study kind of looking at how how many people can we remember with complexity? Okay. And that you know this argument that human brains mm. can remember around 175 to 200 people in detail and complexity. Interesting. And maybe this is an interesting metric for thinking about the size of thriving communities. Right. That um, maybe the communities aren't limited to 200, but that we need to know. So the point about that is, you know, it. It, we, it would be interesting and important probably to do more research on what kind of variables would help us set up communities to thrive and societies to thrive. Interesting. Um, versus what kind of things do we research about human behavior and collective behavior to try and make people better workers, managers, or owners, right? Okay. So let me go back to the, the main question you had, right? The, the whole point of that was, let's do more work to study the biology, the neuroscience, behavioral patterns, like what actually helps us be better collective participants. Um, but your question it's was about hierarchy. Very interesting, yeah. Right? The yeah. turn toward oligarchy or hierarchy. Um, as, as upsetting as this might be to a lot of people with, you know, values based in liberation and justice and, and, and whatnot, I actually don't consider hierarchy that big of a problem. Interesting. Um, okay. Whether we consider natural hierarchies. There's a biologist named Yuko Zilstra. Yeah. Fantastic, interesting work to understand all sorts of naturally occurring hierarchical systems. Or we think about um, the fact that we all, you know, we all learn from people with more experience because there's a hierarchy implied in that. We also learn, we can learn from people with less experience. Right. But it's going to be different learning. Right. I actually don't think hierarchy is the problem. I think it's domination. Okay. And mm. we, we will do better to think less about hierarchy and more about the problems of domination and what is it what is it that that it happens in some communities or societies where um, hegemony and domination then become what guides the community's decisions does that make sense it's, it does so I think it's actually I think it's okay for us to use hierarchies from time to time um, as long as we can call those hierarchies so does question. it depend on on the values of the people within at the top of the hierarchy or, or there's does there need to be mechanisms to keep um, either like formal or just um, social mechanisms like the society just has values where domination isn't considered like a goal to reach towards it's a um, I mean it would be it would be the equivalent of a yellow flag on the way to an orange flag on the way to a red flag that we would yeah. all get, we would all grow up, you know, we'd grow up in cultures that we learn implicitly and explicitly from a very early age to be suspicious of things that we currently value, to be suspicious of the lone leader, of the achiever, right? This, okay. And so we think about 
understanding hegemony and domination as a much bigger problem than hierarchy, which I think is just not particularly interesting at all. Um, the values of particular people are sure they're going to be important, mm -hmm. but let's take a let's take something out of the philosophies of liberation coming out of Latin America or decolonizing society. So you know I think figures like Enrique Dussel are important here. Um, I read liberation praxis and philosophy out of certain decolonial Latin American contexts through Enrique Dussel and others, but that um, any claim to power, right? Any claim people make to power or authority is legitimate only to the extent that it benefits people who are most vulnerable in that system. Okay. So if a person has more influence and there's a hierarchy, their legitimacy is tethered to the vulnerability of the most mm. vulnerable or to the thriving of the most vulnerable. And, you know, those kind of liberatory approaches to legitimacy, um, uh, you know, we really ought to spend more time with them. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm yeah. pulling something out of like, this is not something most Americans read, philosophy of liberation it or liberation reminds me uh, a little bit of um, John Rawls where... Mm -hmm. I yeah. was wondering if that was... Yeah. Yeah, yeah any any um, any inequality should benefit the least advantage. Yes. Yeah, um, I think Rawls ends up at a similar place for weird reasons, but I don't think Rawls' version is the same. Right, he's you more know? of a traditional progressive liberal. Yeah, I would say, and I think I mean he lives intact a state, you know, a centralized state, okay. um, among other things. Um, Rawls, you know, Rawls deals in different kinds of liberal law and policy systems. Where I'm talking about collectivism, I I'm see. talking about you know trust, mutual aid, sharing, whether or not there are laws that we use to adjudicate things, which okay. is Rawls's interest, I think. Okay. I'm thinking about what we deeply get taught is legitimacy. I see. Legitimate use of authority or, or power um, in lots of different complex ways. In the anarcho-futurism that interests me, liberationists tell us no claim to power should be considered legitimate unless it benefits people who are, you know, whether we use Rawls' term the least advantage or the most vulnerable. If mm. if power is not used in the interest of preventing suffering or eradicating suffering, then what was the point of any of our systems of power? Um, I just don't want to, I don't really like want to give on that. You know, it's one of those like things where I'd probably get in a really nasty ideological argument with other anarchists. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind there being hierarchies of power and authority. Interesting. To the extent that they serve the you know, fostering of thriving, the prevention of suffering, the elimination of suffering. Um, because I want to leave open that people can create different kinds of hierarchical and non-hierarchical systems, but that domination is not negotiable. And that requires us to rethink what counts as legitimacy around power and authority. So, interesting. any anarchists listening to that are yeah. like, he's full of crap, and he's <laughs> just going to leave us with more authoritarians. Imagine, I imagine that... The, well, who decides? It becomes the question of who decides. Like, what is legitimate in that case? I, so, I do think that's I do a wanna, I do wanna I do want to pivot a little yeah. bit though, um, to talk about um, your research. Sure. In particular, mm -hmm. the the wages of economic um, self deception. Mm -hmm. um, what can you just rephrase? Sure. Or, or sorry. Um, Restate for the audience what this research was about because they didn't hear yeah. your talk. Yeah, um, it is. It, you know the the 
the the lecture, kind of the arc of the the work is to first begin with the very practical reality of suffering caused by finances, you know, and financial markets that have dominated economics. So let's just jump right to the 1963 March mm -hmm. on Washington. Um, in in practice, in reality, for people who eat and need shelter and need medicine, the financial components or the resource components of the demands in the 1963 March have never really been met. You know, certainly give people access to the vote. You can sort of, uh, you know, attempt to desegregate public accommodations, but jobs, housing, extend these things to healthcare, to educational access, these what I would consider, at least even in the liberal constitution, these fundamental entitlements to be able to live and thrive. Mm -hmm. None of those, none of those demands for um, reparations or entitlements have ever been met. So let's just start there, and then moving into some of the myths that our reliance on financial markets perpetuate. One piece of self-deception is the idea that economics and finance are the same thing. I've already kind of talked about right. that, right? So let's. We need to, you know, dispossess ourselves of the idea that economics and finance are identical. They might have to interact, sure, but they are not identical. I think economics is far more important. Anyway, that's one. Another myth, which I draw from scholars like Suzanne Farr and Walter Brueggemann, is this myth of scarcity. This constant sort of weird underlying assumption that I think most people in industrialized societies have that um, there's not enough to go around. There are enough resources and opportunities. Now, humans are behaving in a way, you know, we are headed in a way where we are going to hit resource capacity, right, and limitations. But we actually live in pretty radical abundance. It's just maldistributed. So we need to replace the myth of finance as economics. Right. We need to replace the myth of scarcity with a myth of sufficiency or a myth, you know, sorry, with a, a liturgy of, a, Walter Brueggemann, for instance, calls it the liturgy of abundance. Okay. And, you know, these ideas of sufficiency that we have enough and more to go around. So this research is to say, look, um, we're not going to deal with problems like the economic demands made in the March on Washington unless we think more carefully about economic suffrage. What does it mean? What does suffrage mean, right? Empower people having the power to decide with each other, to use their entitlements, to share resources. Unless we rethink economic suffrage free of certain kinds of myths, we're not going to really deal with some of these key practical economic problems that are then cut by race and gender and sexuality and disability to hurt people in the, different ways. Mm. So I'm like, I'm jumping so quickly across the different ideas, but I, the, the takeaway here is, I think we need a radical rethinking of economics and abundance and scarcity in order to think economic suffrage in, in any kind of real terms or practical terms. What, what's interesting to me is the the myth of scarcity because it um something I, I've thought it's something I've thought about honestly but never had uh like words or like a framework to to elaborate into it. Because for example the amount of food that the world produces and is able to produce is far, far, um, it just out, it, I think it's like the, some, the estimate is like double what human, human, humans actually need. At and least. so if there are way, <laughs> yeah. the waste and what we waste. But, but yeah. in a capitalist system, if, um, you're really trying to, within the capitalist framework, if you're really trying to grow the economy, then trying to, um, redistribute wealth focusing on like the demand side mm -hmm. I, I think tends to have um, 
it can tend to have negative consequences. For example, I think inflation we we see now is because well, um, if people have more money to spend, then companies know that they take advantage mm. of that, and then they they raise uh, raise prices. And so it's 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 like it's so hard to think about because on one hand, in terms of like physical like material objects that exist, yes, there is um, like the myth of scarcity, but in terms of how the market works, mm. scarcity is, is real because when you have, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's because when the resources are held and companies aren't necessarily like competing in order to like lower prices so everyone gets, um, I think I think it has to do with companies being able to make more money by raising prices than by lowering prices a little to get more customers mm-hmm. from the economic standpoint. Yeah, I mean, in the in the finance market world, right, the world of finance and currency, you know, um, is artificial scarcity to right. some extent. Then there's also um, some companies really, really do, like Amazon, for example, had had like a destruction room uh, that was a big news story in Britain where they would destroy like really valuable stuff like masks yep. or brands, yeah. you know, um, what are what are called quote unquote high name brands like um, designer clothes, where mm. w- once they're once they've sold the inventory they plan to sell, the staff destroy these very beautiful, because it's, it's high more price things to keep them. that were made yeah. in sweatshops. So you do, <laughs> they, they can because no, because if huh. if you donate those and people can get them without paying the high prices, they lose their elite brand yeah. status. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I um, I rarely like to use the words sickness or pathology in huh. you know easily because those can be very crazy folk right. that can be really you know destructive um but there's something really disgusting i think we'll keep disgusting there's something really disgusting to me on a very deep level about the destruction of objects that humans suffered to produce right small hands of children in sweatshops creating things that um we throw out discard or waste on a whim i mean it just that i think we should take that as disgusting and you know it should revolt us yeah um, and yeah i don't know how to say it any plainer maybe there's new language besides disgust and the paradigms of disgust but mm. i think we should find it um you know beyond morally trying right. whatever's more useful than moral i guess the solution i would come up with is to try to like boycott those companies i love a good boycott possible. yeah yeah i'm i'm probably gonna have to buy one thing from amazon because I, I just can't find it anywhere else and it's a books like a book stand to prop up books <laughs> it's just not a thing that's commonly sold even though it's really really useful yeah for some reason um you know we we feed we feed these these cruel markets you know and we feed the cruel markets ourselves right we feed them our cash we feed them our labor mm-hmm we can't be surprised when they grow more cruel. And, mm. you know, I, I just want to speak in very basic terms. You know, when we elect or donate or spend into cruel systems, we perpetuate their cruelty. Interesting. Now, I know there's also the argument that there's no such thing as ethical consumption under global capitalism, right? So we can't hate ourselves for surviving these hideous systems. Mm. We can't do that. Um, where and when we can boycott and find alternatives, we should. I mean, I think if we have alternatives to these cruel systems, we should try to take them. And and mm. 
there not, actually is a not a new, tell ourselves yeah. a weird story actually, that there's sense? apparently a new yeah. like political party that's forming that's called the cooperative community really i don't i don't know anything about them at all yeah. i if they turn out to be like horrible people who have some like weird ideology then then i don't want to promote them because i i really know nothing about them at all but i just i just got their email and based on what it sounds like it sounds like they might have some of the same like just based on the name but that's a huge assumption i don't really know because it's it's called the cooperative community party um yeah i don't know a thing about them um i think uh minister rap yeah, 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 wrapping toward time. Okay. Um, one of the things, an open question that I wonder about just following that is the the commodification, the co-opting or commodification of anarchism, futurism, huh. mutual aid, and to what extent, you know, I mean, the quote-unquote green or sustainability movement has been so corporately co-opted and commodified. Hmm. To what extent these growing efforts at mutual aid or anarchism will get colonized or taken over by, you know, corporate private profit? And interesting. And is there anything inherent in anarchism that prevents it, you know, prevents these ideas from being commodified? I, you know, I don't know. I sure hope so. But um, we can be, we can look at, we can look at how the same cycle of commodification and co-optation has happened, and maybe we can get a little better at resisting it and deciding that um, no for-profit entity really has any deep interest in fostering liberation and social justice like you know is that a hard line to draw like i got friends in business schools who hmm. i think think there's hope for the corporation i'm not sure there is but corporate social responsibility i um i don't see it working out anyway yeah okay yeah well i think it's probably all the time we have um it was a very interesting thought i just don't have a just can't think of a response right now but thank you for leaving us with that thanks um, Roman. yeah thanks for the yeah. time you have great questions and then you okay. know as other things arise you know we can keep yeah talking. i definitely hope to speak again sure. so this has been christian matthias um he's a researcher and professor at guilford so you're a visiting professor mm-hmm. so are you Where's your based university? The visiting professor is a job oh, okay. classification. Like, this is actually probably important just for labor reasons. Yeah. It's a classification of jobs created when boards of trustees and administrators sought to destroy tenure. <laughs> I see. So instead of hiring okay. tenured faculty, which would stabilize the base and give oh, you a quality okay. education, a movement decades ago to destroy tenure, to destroy the protections of research and teaching, yeah. right? To put research and teaching either under corporate or state control. Huh. Tenure protects against corporate and state control, right. hopefully. I mean, that's the ideal, at least. Visiting positions are meant to keep us on a labor leash. Oh, you know, Because we I can see. always be threatened with the non-renewal of a contract. So this is my job, right? I live here. Oh, this is my okay, home. okay. But, um, yeah, it's... Um, I had lunch with a Martia Sen once, and I, he said, oh, you have a folding chair. You know, so other faculty get a chair. I said, you have a folding chair. Um, which was both the nicest and most That's... awful thing Amartya Sen can say. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, thanks, That's, buddy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Very ironic so that you of all people was made to be a visiting. <laughs> yeah, I love Instead of a tenured professor. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Roman. <laughs>